Okay, so let's look at, um, we are on page uh, 47, talking about the effectual call, effectual calling, and we're on point number, actually, we'll just go back and review uh, the first point there. Effectual calling. All those whom God hath predestinated unto life, and those only he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by his almighty power determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. And so God doesn't bring people to Christ against their will. What he does is he changes their heart. And the way that God designed humanity, and this is true, every human being in the whole world, no matter how old they are or where they live, our hearts are designed to have just one thing that we ultimately serve. There's only one um, ultimate highest affection that we have. And prior to God changing our hearts, that, that one thing that we serve more than anything will always be sin. And we will never have any desire to turn from sin to Christ unless God does that work, unless he changes that heart. And the way that Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the prophets talk about it as a change of heart, God changes the heart of stone that's dead to be a living heart of flesh, meaning what he does is he changes our affection. So that I remember um, so clearly the reason... A lot of people thought I was converted when I was a little younger. I don't think I was actually saved until I was 18 years old because I just, I did not have any real desire to follow Christ or to, I mean, the main reason I, I didn't do as much bad as I thought about doing is I didn't want to get in trouble. It, and it wasn't because I loved God. It wasn't because of anything like that. But once that change happened, I remember thinking about life and thinking there's so many things I've got to stop doing and so many things I've got to start doing. And it was just the, the beginning of this war with sin. Remember we looked at Romans 7 last time, and Paul talks about the war that we have with, with sin. Once a person's saved, they, they enter into that war, and it starts. And it's very hard. It's very exhausting. But um, Can people have that war before they're converted, when they're be under, are being brought under conviction by the Holy Spirit? Somewhat, yeah. Mm-hmm. When people start to see their sin, once the spirit really starts to show you, like, here's how bad you really are, uh, yeah, they'll start thinking things have got to change. Um, it's not always instantaneous, though. People will be convicted of their sin for a while sometimes before they will um, come to Christ. But, but yeah, it can be. But really, it's not until God really changes your heart and you come to Jesus and you're saved, you're justified, you're declared righteous, you're now a child of God. But then that, that will begin the Christian life, which is a war, a battle for holiness. And it's, it's, really, it's really exhausting and really hard. So, Okay, good question. Uh, point two, <clears throat> this effectual call is of God's free grace. It's free and special grace alone. Not from anything at all foreseen in man who is altogether passive therein. Until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit, he is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it. Okay, one of the great illustrations of this is in the book of Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 37, where God tells Ezekiel to preach to a valley of dry bones. You remember that, that passage, is Ezekiel 37? And God asks Ezekiel, 
tell me, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, you know if they can. And God says, preach to them. And as he preaches to them, God assembles this, this army. He puts all the bones back together and puts flesh back on them and raises them back to life. That's what conversion is. Like when the word of God is preached, when the gospel is preached, um, God's spirit will work through that to make people alive in Christ. And we issue the call to repent and believe the gospel and God will make that effectual in some people at, in his own sovereign appointed time. So our goal is just to get the message right. Our goal is to just simply preach it accurately and faithfully to deliver it. God does the rest. He does what he wants to do with it. So, and it's not um, because of anything foreseen in, in man and we're passive in it. Think about, there's so many illustrations of conversion that are given in some of Jesus's miracles. Remember, Lazarus was dead in the tomb for four days. And Jesus simply says, Lazarus, come forth. In John chapter 11, and Lazarus rises from the dead. That's the way it is with conversion. We are dead in our sins until God issues that call to rise again, to make us alive in Christ. And that's why the idea of being a haughty or arrogant or pompous Christian is just, if you really understand why you're a believer, how could you ever be arrogant or pompous about it? God made you alive while you were dead. He rose you back, raised you back to life. So, okay, number three, elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the spirit who worketh when and where and how he pleaseth so also are all other elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. Okay, so this is an important point because the Bible, God wisely does not tell us every child that dies before this age goes to heaven. Why would that be dangerous for God to tell us that? They could abort their babies and are born. They don't even run the risk of rebelling or going to hell. Now, is God able to save unborn children and mentally incapacitated people? Of course. Sure. He's not limited by anything like that. But the ordinary way that God saves people, the ordinary way he does it is through the preaching of the gospel and the ministry of the word, and he effectually calls his people. But children, you know, miscarriages, uh, children that are aborted, uh, people that have severe mental handicaps, God is able to save them. He is able to save them however he wants to. Okay, you have to leave, leave God in charge of all of that. Um, but the main thing to remember is even a, a child, even an unborn child, does need to be saved. They're not innocent. Okay, and that's one, one thing people really struggle with. How can a baby be guilty of anything? Well, the greatest refutation of the idea that children are innocent is the fact that they can die. Because remember, what does scripture say? The wages of sin is death. So if a child really was innocent, they wouldn't be able to die. So the fact that they're mortal, the fact that a child can die, um, demonstrates that they are guilty of Adam's sin. I see a question forming in your mind. Okay. And this is something that I have a feeling that I might have to correct myself on. Mm -hmm. Okay, in the womb, the child has not had an opportunity to do anything right or wrong, but they're still guilty of sin. Think about in Psalm 51 when David is, is repenting in, of his... In sin I was conceived. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, is it Proverbs 6? Um, there are seven things the Lord hates. Yeah, Proverbs And 6. one is those who shed innocent, innocent blood. Mm-hmm. So with 
how do, how would that apply to a, a baby in the womb? How did that thought of a, a mother or the doctor or an accessory to the murder of that child? God is God is gravely offended by that by their murdering a child. Yeah. But we um, we can't apply that passage that that child is innocent in the womb because it hasn't had the opportunity to do anything right or wrong. Right. The child is innocent. He's innocent or she's innocent because in the sense they've never actually committed sin against other human beings or anything like that. But they're conceived in sin and born in sin um, okay. because they are of their federal, of their union with Adam. Yeah. So, but, okay. but the main thing, and I've had so many arguments with people, like I've had arguments that are very, very painful um, with people who have had children that died, little, little kids that died. Yeah. I had a guy, there was a guy... At the church in Ohio, it was so sad. It was like one of the most heartbreaking things. A child at the age of three fell in a swimming pool and partially drowned and was vegetated for the next like 18 years. He didn't die until he was in his 20s. And that was one of the worst things I have ever had to deal with pastorally. It was just awful. And he just could not handle the idea that. He didn't like the idea that God was sovereign, number one. He didn't like the idea that God chooses who he's going to save. And so he denied completely that originally, did not believe in original sin. Did not believe in original sin. Did not think that uh, babies were born in sin, that they were conceived in sin. And I used to ask him, so there's going to be a whole huge group of people in heaven who didn't need a savior? They're there because they deserve to be there? They're not there because Jesus died for them or, or saved them. Well, uh, whatever. But the fact is, from all the way, 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 way back when Augustine and Pelagius argued about these very same issues, Augustine said, look, the Bible teaches this, number one. But number two, the fact that children die shows that you're wrong. They're not innocent. If they were innocent, they would be immortal. So, And it's painful stuff. I mean, you know, people, people miscarry. We've miscarried before. And it's painful stuff. But... The fact that we're Christians, though, I think gives us a reason to have hope that we will see those kids. Remember David, when David's child died? I will go to him, David said. And we know that people can be saved while they're still in the womb. Remember John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit while he was still in the womb. So God is not limited by our mental capacity. He can save whoever he wants. But the ordinary way he does it is through preaching and, and the gospel evangelism. Okay, that's a thorny point there but a but a very important one okay point number four we're on page 49 there joseph point four others not elected though they may be called by the ministry of the word and may have some common operations of the spirit yet they never truly come under christ and therefore cannot be saved much less can men not professing the christian religion be saved in any other way whatsoever be they never so diligent to frame their lives according to the light of nature and the laws of that religion they do profess and to assert and maintain that they may is very pernicious and to be detested. Okay, so when the apostles went out and preached, they said there is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. This is the only way that you can be saved. And that is getting more and more and more unpopular in America today, but that's the truth. If we're Christians, we have to stand for that truth. And if people really get angry about it, and that's just too bad. Um, that's the way it was in ancient Rome when the apostles went out and preached. People didn't like it then either. But Peter in Acts four twelve said there is salvation in no other name under heaven. 
Because only Jesus has done what we have to have done for us. Only he is the God-man who died for our sins. Only he has achieved the righteousness by which we can enter heaven. None of the other religions' founders did that. And so it's very, very important that we understand the exclusive claims of, um, of Jesus. Only he has done what, what has to be done to save us. Okay, and that's just, as I said, you've got to brace yourself. People don't like that uh, today. And when I was in the corporate world for 11 years as a programmer, before I was a, a pastor, the conversations with fellow employees would often stop once we got there. Because it's like, so all of us are, you think everyone here is going to hell and, you know, you're the only one going to heaven. And you think unless someone believes that you believe they're, you know, they're, they're lost and they're going to burn in hell forever. And <laughs> that's the answer. Yep. That's right. But it's not because you don't believe what I believe. It's because you're not forgiven of your sins. It's because you're, you're clothed in the, in the rags of your own sin against God. I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's the only reason I'm going to heaven. It's not because I'm better than you. And that's hard to get across too because people automatically think that you think like they do, that good people go to heaven. So you must think you're better than me if you think you're going to heaven. And it's just the opposite. It's I see how bad I am and therefore I trust in Christ. And if you can get that across, people will, will change their tone, but it's very hard to because they, they, they want to think that you have to believe you're better than them or something. Okay, chapter 11 of Justification. And this is really the heart, this is like the beating heart of the entire Christian faith is this. Um, Martin Luther, the great German reformer, called this the doctrinal article upon which the Christian church stands or falls. So if you get this one wrong, it really doesn't matter where else you're right. You've got to understand how a sinner is made right with God. So let's look at this. Those whom God effectually calleth, he also freely justifieth. Not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, nor by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them, they receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, it is the gift of God. <clears throat> so you guys understand what the word imputed means? It's just like crediting. If someone credits money to my bank account, then it's in my bank account. God does that with, with Christ's righteousness. It's credited to our account before God. And that's how we're saved. Because all of our sin, the, the legal guilt of that sin, is credited to him at the cross. That's why he dies. That's why that death is so awful. Is because he is held legally responsible for every transgression of God's law I've ever committed in my entire life, along with all the sins of all his people, is legally put into his account at the cross. And that's why, um, as long as you're anywhere near me in my preaching and teaching ministry, I'm going to be emphasizing it's Christ alone. Christ alone. Christ alone that saves us. Because he's the one who bore that, that debt. He's the one who was cursed by God so that we wouldn't be so that we could go free. And so I could, I could live my whole life knowing my sins are forgiven. Even every sin I'm going to commit in the future is already forgiven in the sight of God. And I can have assurance that I'm going to heaven because of what Jesus did, because it's a perfect work that he did for me. And so once that righteousness is imputed into my account, I'm justified before God, I'm adopted into his family, and he will never disown me. You cannot lose that once that's happened. Okay, um, so does that make sense? 
there's a lot in scripture we could um, look at. In fact, let's look at a few things here. Let's look at Romans chapter uh, 3. Romans 3. Um, a few years ago, I preached through the book of Romans, and it was such a blessing to be able to do it because there's so much that's great in this book. And this little paragraph, Romans 3, 19 and following. Romans 3, 19. This little paragraph I'm, I'm going to read to you here. One of the um, one of the great Bible commentators in modern times is a guy named Leon Morris. I think he died not too long ago. But Leon Morris's commentary on Romans, he said, "This what I'm about to read to you is the most important paragraph ever written in human history." He said, "In the entire history of the world, this is the most important paragraph ever written." And I think he's right. But so listen to it. Look at Romans three nineteen. Now we know that whatever the law says. It says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. So the law makes everybody guilty. There is nobody anywhere that keeps it. No one keeps the commandments of God to the satisfaction of God's holiness. No one does it. And then he concludes the argument in verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Okay, so the law, the Ten Commandments, were given to us not to, sh- to save us, not to make us right with God, but to show us our sin and to show us our need for a Savior. That's the primary reason the law was given to us, was to show us our sin. And how did, let me ask you all, how did the Pharisees and the Jewish people at the time of Christ, how did they misunderstand the law? What did they actually think they could do? Be good enough. Yeah, they thought they could actually keep it. And you remember the Sermon on the Mount? Where Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not um, commit murder. But I say to you, anyone who hates his brother without cause is guilty of murder. Okay, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But if you commit adultery in your heart, it's the same thing. Okay, and he goes on from there. He shows that the law of God does not require just outward conformity. Because there were a lot of people in Jesus' audience who probably had never committed adultery. They've been faithful in their marriage and... Um, had probably never murdered anybody. And he points out to them, you're, you're making the law too low. It requires conformity, not just in your actions, but in your thoughts, in your motives. And everything that goes on in your imagination has to be in perfect conformity with God's law. And so he's showing them, some of you may think you keep it, but you don't. And that law puts you under condemnation. Okay, And so the whole purpose of the Ten Commandments of God's giving the law was to show people, to show us our need for a Savior our need for Jesus, for someone else's righteousness to get us into heaven. Now look at verse 21. The whole tone of Romans changes here. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Okay, just stop there for a moment. So when you think about those terms, justified and condemned, very, very often you'll hear in Christian circles, and rightly so because the Bible does speak this way, of being saved versus not being saved. That word saved is referring to being saved from God's judgment, saved from God's wrath. Okay, so if a person's saved, that means they've been justified before God's law, so they'll be saved from his wrath. At the very last day, God is going to summon forth every human being that's ever lived on this planet, including all of us. Every one of us will be there. And we're going to hear our final verdict. 
before God on the day of judgment. And it will be one of two things. Either you are condemned by the law or you're justified. Either saved or lost. One of of the two. Those that were relying on Christ alone are justified before God, are adopted into God's family, they go to heaven. Those that die trusting in something else or thinking they're good enough, or they say they believe in Jesus, but they've added things to him. They think something else in addition to Jesus is going to save them. They will hear that verdict condemned. The law of God condemns you. And therefore, it says in Matthew 25, and these shall go away into everlasting fire, prepare for the devil and his angels, but the righteous into eternal life. So this idea, this notion of being justified or condemned, that's the heart of everything. And when you think about death and dying, you need to be relying on what Christ has done, or what only what he has done to save you. Okay, look at verse 25. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Okay, do you guys know what the word propitiation means? That's a, the English translation of a very important Greek word. It means a sacrifice that turns away wrath. That's what propitiation means. To propitiate God means his justice is now satisfied, has been answered, and that justice is not going to fall on us now. So the word propitiation is a very, very important um, word that you need to know what that means. It's a sacrifice that turns away God's anger, God's wrath against us. Okay, verse 26, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay, so God... People have asked me this question before. Why can't God, why can't he just overlook sin? Why can't he just forgive people and just let them all into heaven? God can't do that because his holiness, his holy nature cannot be set aside. It's got to be satisfied. When God entered into that covenant of works with Adam and with all of Adam's descendants, which we are, he said, Adam, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And that's true of all of us too. I am in that covenant of works and I don't keep it and neither do you, neither does anybody. And that's why for us to go to heaven, someone's got to do it for us. Someone has to meet all those obligations for us. Jesus does that. He enters into the covenant of works and keeps it all vicariously in our place. And then that's imputed to our account. And that's why I I emphasize to you what the prophets emphasize. It's like a robe of righteousness. It's like a garment of salvation that God clothes us with. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And the cross is the satisfaction of divine justice against us so that we can be led into heaven. And so when Jesus said it is finished there on the cross, that means it's paid in full now. The debt is fully paid and no charge of wrongdoing will ever be brought against those that really know Jesus and trust in him. You cannot be condemned before God. Cannot be. Because Jesus was already condemned for you. And, I mean, that... Knowing that and really understanding that really makes me want to live for him. Makes me want to, to be the best husband I can be, the best father I can be, the best minister I can be. I want to do that in gratitude and thankfulness to him for doing all of that. Because he didn't have to do that. He could have left me in my sins and rightly so. Rightly so. But he didn't. So that's a, a glorious thing. Okay, uh, one other passage. Look over at Romans 5, verses 6 and following. Just another great passage Romans 5 6 for when we were still without strength in due time Christ died for the ungodly for scarcely for a righteous man will one die yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die 
But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So because he died for us and has justified us by that shed blood, we will, we will be saved from the wrath of God. The wrath of God will not come against me. Well, one more, I'm sorry. Romans 8, uh, 31 and following. Romans 8, 31 and following. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Think about that. He did not spare his own son. He didn't spare Jesus from undergoing this terrible, awful, cursed death of the cross so that he could spare us. So he could save us from having to go through it. Bless you. Verse 33, I love this. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? You know, when you go to court, for whatever reason, you have to hear the charges against you. No one can bring a charge against me. It never happened. Why? They're all charged against Jesus. God already took all my sin, all of it, everything. The original sin I inherited from Adam, my corrupt nature, every transgression of God's law I committed as a teenager, everything I've done since then, all the ways I will fail him in the future, were charged against Christ. And he bore them, bore those sins. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then these last two verses are just gold. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers, that the principalities and powers are demons, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So God never lets go. Once he's got a hold of someone, they're his forever. And I just, I just love that. Okay, let's get back to the question here. And that was just point one on justification. Okay, point number two on the next page there, page 52. Faith, thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness, is the alone instrument of justification. Okay, so faith. What, what is faith? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? It means that you transfer your personal trust for getting into heaven from yourself, your works, your obedience, your whatever, to Christ alone. That's what faith is. To believe in Jesus means I believe that he died for me and that his righteousness is mine. And that's it. Faith is not obedience. Faith is not works. Faith is not faithfulness. Faith simply looks to Christ and nothing else to save us. It is the alone instrument of justification. And now look at the rest of point two. Yet, it is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. Now this is a very, very, very important distinction. Does God bring about good works in our lives? Yes. Does he bear fruit in us? Think about, you know, the passage where I had to memorize it when I was a kid. The fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control. You know, God bears those fruits. Are we saved by those fruits? Do they play any role in getting us into heaven? No. The fruit that grows on the tree only makes it known to other men what kind of a tree it is. Okay, like the apple trees over there, I think they're all dead now, but 
when we lived here 10 years ago, there were always apples on the apple trees. And I used to use that as an illustration to, to teach my kids. Wouldn't it be weird if suddenly one of the apple trees started bearing oranges? But that would never happen because they're apple trees. It's the same thing with us. Prior to being changed by the effectual call of God and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, we will do nothing but bear bad, bad fruit. You know, my life before I came to Christ, it just bore nothing but bad fruit. And I remember that. And then when the Spirit of God takes over and we're saved and justified before God, he bears that fruit in us. So the faith that we're justified by is accompanied by a changed life too. But that changed life doesn't save us, nor does it keep us saved. Okay, so let me ask this question. Was King David a believer? He was a man after God's own heart. Mm-hmm. So he... Yeah, he was a believer. He, he went, did David go to heaven? Of course. What about when David committed adultery and multiple homicides? What if someone threw a millstone out of a tower and smashed his head while he was in the midst of all that? Would he have still gone to heaven? He, yeah. Yeah. Of course. I mean, look at Psalm 51. Do not, I mean, how much mm-hmm. it says, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you, and only you have I sinned. That's right. It, that's right. So he's still, he's still right with God, even in the midst of the terrible sin. Okay. So there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God once we're believers. Now people hear that and think, man, that just sounds like you're, you're telling people they can just sin all they want. But is a true Christian going to want to do that? Well, of course um, not. Paul says um, in Romans, may, may it continue in sin so grace can abound. Mm-hmm. Or he says, may it never be. May it never be. That's right. Romans 6.1. Paul, Paul makes a statement at the end of Romans 5. I mean, think about this, guys. He says, but where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. He preached that. And people were like, Paul... If you tell people that, they're going to go out there and just live like the devil. And his answer was, well, what shall we say then? Shall we live like the devil and still think we're going to heaven? And he says, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? God changes the heart. And a person who claims to be a Christian and thinks they can go out sinning all the time, and I've told people this before, I don't think you are a Christian. You have no desire for fellowship with God's people, no, no hunger for the word of God, no interest in holiness. You haven't been converted then. That doesn't mean we're saved by holiness or that we're saved by our works, but it does mean God changes the person that is justified, for sure. We will produce fruit showing that we've come to repentance. That's right. You will bear that fruit. Now, the chances are pretty good. In fact, they're certain. You probably won't be satisfied with how much fruit you bear in your life. I never have been. I've always thought I should be better than than I am. But... That's a good thing because that keeps us clinging to the gospel, clinging to Christ. And I promise you, I know when I'm dying, my only hope will be in Christ just like it is right now. No matter how much God sanctifies me, no matter how much better he makes me, no matter how many trials he takes me through and how much work he accomplishes in me or how much fruit he bears, my confidence for entering heaven will never be in my fruit. It will always and only be in Christ, Jesus, alone, period, until I'm dead. And I praise God for that. I'm very thankful for that. All right, let's press on. Look at point number three. Christ, by his obedience and death, did fully discharge the debt of, of, those that are ju- of all those that are justified and did, I love how they say this, make a proper, real, and full satisfaction to his father's justice in their behalf. I love that, that string of adjectives. Proper, real, and full, just in case there's any doubt. 
Yet, inasmuch as he was given by the Father for them, and his obedience and satisfaction accepted in their stead, and both freely, not for anything in them, their justification is only of free grace, that both the exact justice and rich grace of God might be glorified in the justification of sinners. See, this is why when Paul wrote Galatians, like I would encourage you, if you haven't read the book of Galatians recently, read the whole book. It'll take you 15 minutes to read it. Paul was very angry when he wrote that book. Like when I, t- when I took uh, the Pauline epistles in seminary, the professors and the books that we read about Galatians, um, one of the commentators we had to read was a guy, was Leon Morris again. Morris said, the guy, when Paul wrote this letter, he was so mad that you can almost picture him writing it through gnashed teeth. He was that upset when he wrote Galatians because they were adding things to faith in Christ as the means of being right with God. And Paul saw right through that. He said, you guys are saying that what Jesus did is not enough. And that's why he blew a gasket. That's why he goes off in that letter. And every time I read it, I'm like, do we have the same measure of passion for the gospel when we hear it denied? I wish the whole church did. I wish everybody did. We all should. I should have more passion for it. That it's Christ alone who saves us. And we lay hold of him by faith alone, not by works, not by fruit, not by sanctification or our pursuit of holiness or anything like that. It is Christ alone. And we lay hold of him by faith alone. We trust in him and nothing else. And that's why this is here. The exact justice and rich grace of God are glorified in the justification of sinners. But the moment we start adding things to faith as what saves us or gets us into heaven, we are no longer glorifying the grace of God. We're, we're saying what Christ did is not enough. And there was a young, young guy that came to our church years ago and um, got a chance to meet with him a bunch of times. And we walked through these passages in Romans and read through stuff together. We would sit at Panera. And I remember, what the, I remember when the gospel finally got through. Finally, God finally saved him. We, had, we baptized him here. And he, he said, he made the statement that we were reading passages from Galatians. He's like, yeah, if I, if I thought that anything I did was decisive in getting me into heaven. Yeah, that'd be like saying what Christ did was is not enough to do it. And I wanted to jump up on the table and dance. I was like, I was like, he's finally got it. Like, it just it took a long time. But I was like, he's got it now. And then the next time we met, he's like, I, I need to be baptized because I know that it's nothing I've done. I know that Jesus is, is my savior and, and he's he's sufficient and it's only what he did. And I was like, that's, that's so cool. I love it. So, but sometimes it takes a long time to. to for someone to really get that. It's Christ alone that you need to rely on. So, Okay. Uh, next page, point number four. God did from all eternity decree to justify all the elect, and Christ did in the fullness of time die for their sins and rise again for their justification. Nevertheless, they are not justified until the Holy Spirit doth in due time actually ap- apply Christ unto them. The reason that point is there is there were, there were some theologians during this time that were saying that, well, the elect, since they're chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, they're just justified from all eternity. They come into, as soon as they're conceived, they're already justified. But clearly that's not taught in scripture because Paul himself says in Ephesians 2 that we were, just like everyone else, children of wrath before we were justified. Okay, so even the elect come into the world under God's judgment until they're actually justified before God and effectually called by the ministry of the word. So, okay, point number five. God doth continue to forgive the sins of those that are justified, and although they can never fall from the state of justification, yet, this is important here, 
they may, by their sins, fall under God's fatherly displeasure and not have the light of his countenance restored unto them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, beg pardon, and renew their faith and repentance. Now, that is such an important point. Like, I hope you guys will listen. There's a very important distinction between judicially applied punishment based on God's law and fatherly discipline. Okay, when a, when a parent disciplines their child, are they exacting punishment from them in the eyes of the law? No. They're just disciplining them because they're their children. Okay? So a, a justified person will always be forgiven in the sight of God's law, but they can be disciplined by God for their sins. Remember David? <laughs> David was disciplined. Like, tell me, based on your, your knowledge of the Old Testament, what did God do to David and his household because of his sin? Well, his, his son died. He took mm-hmm. his life. Yep. Um, I mean, that's the one thing I can think of offhand. Remember he told him, the sword will never depart from your house. David had kids that killed each other. His life was a mess for the rest of his life. But God never takes away our salvation. He never takes away our justification. But he will bring down the rod of correction on us as a, as a good father would their own children if they get out of line. So God does chasten us. But that chastening is different from um, our salvation. It's a totally different matter. So always make a distinction between judicially applied punishment and fatherly discipline. Those are different things. So the justified can never lose their justification, but they can be disciplined by God for their sins. Okay, one more point here, point number six. The justification of believers under the Old Testament was, in all these respects, one and the same with the justification of believers under the New Testament. So what's that saying? Abraham and David and Isaac and Jacob and Daniel, everyone that believed before the coming of Christ, they were justified by faith alone, just like we are. Okay. They, they believed in the Christ who was come one day. We look back to him. But it's the same gospel. All right. Any questions? All right. Well, sorry. <clears throat> Father, thank you again for this time to be together. and pray your blessing on um, my brother and my sisters here. And I pray that you bless our worship. and pray you bless both services. I pray they'd be well attended. That people would be ready to hear from your word and would be um, edified, encouraged, uh, convicted. Uh, sanctified and I pray uh, for those carrying burdens uh, that you would be with them and help them to to trust in your sovereignty and not to have fear Um, we're so thankful to you for the gospel and may Jesus always be in our hearts and our minds in his name we pray amen